0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
1: Tuesday morning the 24th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am this is Michael Reid on LMFM. We begin this morning in the special criminal court where two men have faced charges in relation to the murder of Keane Mulrady Woods three years ago in January of 2020. As you know Paul Crosby and Gerard Cruz have both pleaded guilty to facilitating the. Circumstances uh, that led to the murder of uh, the 17-year-old in Drogheda. A, a crime that just shocked the community, the nation and indeed many people further afield. Yesterday, the court heard uh, from uh, the family and uh, Elizabeth Woods, Keemil Reedy Woods, uh, whose uh, mother uh, um, uh, told the court uh, about... A nightmare that the family have been living with uh, for the last uh, three years. Frank Graney, our court's correspondent, uh, was in the special criminal court and he's on the line with us now. A very good morning to you, Frank, and thanks uh, for joining us. What can you tell us uh, about what Elizabeth Woods had to say? Her statement was uh, delivered by Detective Inspector Aidan McCabe, I think.
2: That's that's right. Elizabeth was in court uh, yesterday, but the victim impact statement was read out uh, by the witness as. You say, and I think she summed up nicely what happened to her son in January of 2020 when she described it as one of the most brutal and traumatic murders in the history of the state. What happened to Keane Mulready Woods in a house, I understand, not too far from your station, Michael, in Rathmullen Park, the most brutal, horrific murder. You know, your listeners will be very familiar with the details of this case. I won't go into them in any great detail, but what happened to him and what happened to him after he was murdered, you know, the fact that his he was dismembered and his remains were dropped off at locations in Dublin and, indeed, um, some remains were found over a year later on some waste ground uh, quite near the house in Rathmunnan Park where he was murdered – and I suppose Elizabeth touched on all of that, touched on the horror of what hap- happened and the distress, I suppose, of um, of reading about it in the newspapers and, you know, reading about her son and what had happened to her son um, the unbearable grief that she and her family are now living with. And she also addressed the senselessness and the sheer horror of his death. She described on a number of occasions in this victim impact statement, uh, she described Keane as her baby. And you have to remember, he was just 17 years of age. He was on the cusp of turning 18 um, at the time of his murder. Elizabeth said that words could not describe how the family is feeling. She said that to lose a child in a tragic accident is one thing, but to lose one to such an inhumane, violent and barbaric death is beyond words.
1: And no mother wants to bury her child. Uh, She said she felt that the situation she was in because of uh, the way the body was dismembered, that she had to bury him twice.
2: Yes, that was um, something that she mentioned about the added trauma and the distress of having two burials for her son, um, one in the immediate aftermath. And again, when the final set of remains were found just over a year later, you know, re-traumatizing her and the family, no doubt. It's not the natural course of things to lose a child and for a child to go before a parent. But as she touched on in her victim impact statement, to lose a child in the way that she lost Keane three years ago now adds to that distress. And she said that a part of her died that day too. And she said that they'd have to live with the grief and the loss for the rest of their lives. She said their souls are broken, their hearts shattered. Keane would have turned 21 next month. And she said that they'd mark it with balloons and cake by his graveside. And something that um, that I took a note of listening to her victim impact statement was a remark that she spoke about um, Keen, how he wasn't too bothered about gifts on his birthday, but he always wanted a lovely cake. And I thought that just highlighted, I suppose, how young he was. And look, I know people out there will say that Keen Mulready Woods was no angel, but he absolutely didn't deserve to die in the way that he was brutally killed. Um, Elizabeth described again the distress of of reading about his death in the newspapers and she said, and I thought that this was particularly poignant towards the end of her victim impact statement when she said that she was tormented by the unanswered questions like when did her son realise that he was going to be killed? You know, did he suffer? Did he try to run away when it became clear what the intention was in the House that day? And particularly poignantly I felt she wondered if he called out for her in his dying moments.
1: Right, and wished how she could hear him say just one more time that he loved his mother.
2: Yeah, and she spoke about his cheeky smile and it was very clear from listening to those words yesterday and clearly you can only gauge so much from a victim impact statement but it was very clear that they had quite a close bond. Um, You know, she spoke about the devastating impact that his death has had on his siblings as well you know they're also young to be going through this. No family should be going through this, and um, sadly they have spent the past three years going through this nightmare. And the various you know times that this has come before the courts, and of course last year we had a man jailed for four years for cleaning up the crime scene. A man called Jared McKenna. Um, he was living in the house at Rathmullen Park. Um, he allowed his house to be used. Now, he said, and it was accepted, that he didn't know what it was going to be used for. But afterwards, he made um, a fairly poor, I think it's fair to say, attempt to clean up the crime scene. When the guards got a confidential tip-off that Keane had been murdered in that house, they went in and they searched it and they saw that Jared McKenna had put down floorboards on top of floorboards and um, there was still blood spatter on the walls. It was very obvious that something horrific had happened there. It wasn't a great effort put in concealing what had happened there, and he was jailed for four years
1: all right. Uh, has uh, the murder of Keem Mulready Woods uh, been solved, if you like? Has justice been served uh, uh, as much as is possible in that Jared McKenna, as you say, uh, has been convicted of cleaning up the scene? We've Paul Crosby and Jared Cruz who've uh, admitted to facilitating. Uh, the gang that murdered Keemal Reedy Woods uh, and uh, I think the court heard the different roles uh, that they played in doing that Uh, and the court was also told that the killer uh, was Robbie Lawler who is now deceased.
2: That's right and you know when you posed that question you began by asking if justice has been served and I think it's fair to say that Elizabeth and you know the wider family We'll feel that it hasn't, because you also have to remember that uh, Jared Cruz and um, his co-accused were initially supposed to stand trial for murder. Now they did plead to these lesser offences that are facilitating um, what happened. You know, facilitating the criminal organisation that killed Keene Mulready Woods, um, and, and they will be sentenced in due course for that. Their pleas were accepted by the DPP. Which means it is now highly likely that in a few weeks' time, when they are sentenced, I think on the 13th of February from memory, the murder charges against them are likely to be dropped. Jared McKenna, as I say, has already been sentenced to four years in prison. And as you say, the chief suspect, and Robbie Lawler was described for the first time in court yesterday as the chief suspect in Keane Mulready Woods' murder. And he too has become a casualty of that had a feud. He is suspected of being involved and in taking part in a number of murders, including that of Keane Mulready Woods. And he himself was shot dead in Belfast, in broad daylight outside a house in Belfast, just a few months after Keane Mulready Woods was murdered. So once Jared Cruz and his co-accused are dealt with, uh, Paul Crosby, once they're dealt with that will be that. There's nobody else waiting in the wings. As case, far as case,
1: closed, case closed from a, a Garda investigation point of view.
2: I don't think so. And that's what I was about to say. Oh, sorry. Okay. While there may not be anybody waiting in the wings to come before the court, it was made clear to the court yesterday that this is still a live investigation, that the investigation is ongoing. So if there is anybody out there, You know, clearly, Robbie Lawler, they won't be in a position to question Robbie Lawler about what happened. But if there's anybody else out there and if there is evidence that leads them to anybody else's door, then they will certainly be brought to justice. But again, just to reiterate Mm. that point that I made earlier, you know, listening to that victim impact statement read out on behalf of Keane's mother, Elizabeth, and his wider family, I don't think that they will ever feel, you know, that justice has been served Paul Crosby and Jared Cruz, the um, charge that they pleaded guilty to has a maximum penalty of 15 years in prison. As I say, Jared McKenna is serving a four year sentence for cleaning up the house after he was murdered in Rathmullen Park. And we'll find out in a few weeks uh, what sentence the other two accused will be handed down.
1: Right, so that's the 13th of February when they'll be sentenced, is it? That's right, yes. Yeah. Right, okay. Well, I, I suppose uh, people uh, in Drogheda and the surrounding areas uh, will feel somewhat safer knowing uh, that Paul Crosby and Jared Cruz, who have pleaded guilty, will be off the streets uh, for some time uh, to come, uh, given uh, the circumstances of uh, that very brutal murder. So many people, uh, uh, as you know, Frank, have been so disturbed by by what happened to Key and Mulready Woods, not just in this locality, uh, but in particular. I think in this locality because uh, it was very close to home, and a lot of people felt very fearful walking a- around the streets uh, a- around uh, January of uh, 2000. But it, it is hard to contemplate, despite how people felt locally, how the family must feel. And uh, as you say, that was uh, expressed by Elizabeth uh, Keen Mulready Wood's mother in
2: the court that, yesterday. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and and I mean clearly given the hour and just. I suppose, given the grim nature of the case and the gruesome details that have been heard yesterday and on previous occasions in the courtroom, it's very much the PG version that I've given you and your listeners. Some of the details that Keane's family would have had to sit through yesterday and listen to would have undoubtedly added to their stress and their trauma. You know, you had his remains showing up in various locations in Dublin, you know, in the days after she had. Elizabeth had reported her son as a missing person. She was clearly very concerned by him. And I appreciate what you're saying about the the, the, the shock in the community in Drada, but I think it's fair to say that it was felt nationwide. Mm. You know, it touched every household in the country. I think seeing the pictures and learning the details about what happened to King Mulready Woods, not far from where I'm speaking to you from today, near Croke Park in a laneway, near Croke Park, in the boot of a burning car, some remains were found two days after Keene Mulready woods was reported missing. Truly horrific, barbaric, nobody deserves to die in the way that Keene Mulready woods did and to disrespect his body afterwards in the way they did is just beyond words. Indeed.
1: Frank, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. Frank Graney is our course correspondent.
3: Michael Reed, Reed
1: on LMFM. Now you've been hearing a lot about cams uh, that's uh, the child and adolescent mental health services in uh, this country—they're uh, not good, as you've been hearing, uh, and uh, indeed there is many problems, many shortfalls, and many children who are falling through the gaps and who are not getting the attention that they are entitled to and should be receiving. And uh, 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 treatment uh, that uh, has been recommended for them by uh, their psychiatrists and by their doctors. Um, If you want to understand what this means, uh, imagine yourself in a situation with your 16-year-old daughter who's in a a crisis, a real crisis, uh, one uh, which uh, is a matter of life and death. Uh, That's uh, exactly the situation uh, that Richard is in. His daughter is 16 and his daughter uh, has been in this crisis for nine days now, isn't it, Richard?
4: Yeah. So last Monday, I got a call from the school uh, that, you know, she had um, uh, uh, harmed herself. So I I immediately went to the school and we were brought by ambulance to to the hospital. And um, you know, she, she was treated for that, and um, for, for her medical needs. But, um, you know, as, as she's a patient with CAMS and has been with CAMS for the last four or five years, as soon as her medical needs are addressed in the hospital, they uh, immediately look to discharge her. So what's happened in the past when she's been under 16 is that we would um, be referred to CAMS who would approve a release and then we'd have follow-up appointments, appointments with them. But um, for some reason, because she's over 16 now, uh, she's, she's no longer in paediatrics in hospital. She's, she's deemed an adult in the hospital, even though she's still a child.
1: At 16, okay.
4: At 16, she's in mm. an adult section, yeah. I can't bring her. She doesn't go to paediatrics anymore. It's mm. adult section. So she's in with everybody. Um, you know, she's in, she's in there over during the week with you know everybody basically that comes into A&E um, so whether it be you know somebody recovering from alcohol poisoning or drug poisoning yeah. or whatever it might be she's she's thrown into the middle of that right. and that's for all of you know to, to listen to and watch all of that going on in front yeah. of
1: her And your daughter uh, has been uh, on a ward exactly like that with patients uh, yeah. in yeah. that condition over the course of uh, the last week. Has your daughter got a, a diagnosed condition? No so they've,
4: they've, 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 the CAMs have yet to actually give us a diagnosis for her condition, even though we've asked repeatedly for it to be done, for it to be tested, you know. For, After for
1: being seen to for the last four or five years, yeah. did you say? Mm-hmm. Right.
4: And we still don't have a diagnosis.
1: Okay. Uh, uh, have you been through a crisis uh, on this scale before?
4: No. This Well, th- th- this is probably the fourth one Um this is probably worse than previous, um, just simply because her determination seems to be that much greater uh, in this instance, but Hmm. this is probably the fourth crisis where where she's been hospitalised.
1: Okay, and am I right in saying that you've spent the last nine days trying to keep your daughter alive? Yeah. Right. Talk us through the nine days.
4: Okay, so... Day one is that you've brought in uh, medically assessed and, and given uh, medical treatment for a for condition. Um, that, that finished on the Wednesday and basically the doctor came in and said that uh, we've treated our medical needs now and uh, we are looking to discharge her and, and get you a follow-up appointment for CAMS. CAMS are going to see you tomorrow. We've contacted them. They've come back and given us a 12 o'clock appointment for Thursday. So we're letting you go now. So that was that was Wednesday. So I took her home Wednesday, thinking I could keep an eye on her and watch her until um the appointment the next day and it turns out you know, didn't do a great job because she she um she she managed to, to, to hurt herself unfortunately again um overnight. Um, but by it, well, it didn't become aware of that until, until later on. So Thursday we were into CAMS and we're in there for three and a half hours. With a psychologist and um, one, of, one of the other um, case workers that, that looks after, and the at the end of that, uh, quite a, quite, a, quite a, it's a very harrowing process to sit there and and try and get a, a, a teenager that age has gone through all of that to, to to try and regurgitate everything and give reasons for why you know it's it's, it's not easy on her but, but she did it mm. and um, Anyway, at the end, they they, they were recommending uh, residential treatment, which which they haven't done before. Right. So that that means referring her to a residential unit, which would be pro- probably Lindara in Dublin, and um, that's a that's a unit that has 24 beds.
1: And were they recently closed uh, 13 beds, I think.
4: Yeah. 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 Mm. So they 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 apparently had 14 for her uh, type of of. Of diagnosis mm-hmm. and, and, and two other emergency beds and I don't know at this stage because the HSE site is not up to date mm-hmm. as to how many of those beds remain open but the thing is they're not available on an emergency basis so you know child can't be referred into that bed uh, if, if, if they need it urgently they have you have to wait until one of those beds becomes available and mm-hmm. um, so just to just to go on with the you know the, 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 the where we've been since yep. Monday and um, the Cams then at the end of the meeting, after telling us they wanted to, they were referring her to residential treatment, um, and they had to do one final follow-up consult with, with her um, uh, the doctor, who's, who's, who heads up the team there in St Mary's, and and is, they wanted that meeting to happen on the Monday, but uh, in the meantime, they referred us back down to the Lord's Hospital, so because there was a discharge we had to go back into A and E, until they were waiting to get in to triage, all of that, messing again, hours waiting. Eventually, we get in, and finally, after I think twelve or fourteen hours, and um, finally get into a, a, onto a trolley, essentially in in the ward, and um, and as I said to you earlier, the, the, that ward is for for everybody, you know, um. and it's an adult ward. Yeah. Um, even though she's 16, because they, they won't bring her into paediatrics anymore when she hits 16. She's in there with all adults, uh, people who've overdosed, people who've, you know, alcohol poisoning, people who've gotten into fights and bars, yeah. you name it. Everyone's in there, and she's 16. She's sitting there watching yeah. this. Um, I stayed with her. I slept on the floor. Um, there's no beds for, for adults. I mean, other parents have to that. You just stay there, particularly in this case. I, I have to stay. I have to watch her. And... Yeah. Um, now, when when they readmitted her on the Thursday, they gave us what's called a special, which is somebody basically to sit at the end of her bed to watch her, which allowed me to go home and have some rest, which I, I needed at that stage. Mm. Um, and I did the rest in Lasso, because the following day, then I got a phone call um, from social work in the hospital saying, I was to come in and collect. She's being discharged. Right. And so I had a big row with them that day. That was on the, I think, the Friday. Another, another big row on the Saturday. Basically told them I wasn't taking her out. I didn't feel that it was safer to be at home. I couldn't mind her 24-7. Like, as soon as I fall asleep, mm. she's going to try something again. So I needed help with the hospital and, you know, just refused to take her out. So I stood my ground and then um, they finally, I suppose, got rid of me on Monday because I had to take her out of, the Lord's Hospital and bring her up to the CAMS appointments that she was going to on Monday mm-hmm. and, and they mm-hmm. promptly discharged her. Uh, I asked them for a letter which they gave me and actually I actually have I have a copy of that letter here. I just want to read out to you a small part of for sure. CAMS.
0: Yeah.
4: So under the treatment section they've written um, this is the hospital now and the letter they've given mm-hmm. to me CAMS team have been contacted and informed that we cannot adequately ensure child safety in this environment. And if she is unsafe at home, CAMS should consider inpatient mental health services instead of referral to adult medical inpatient services. And they know full well that CAMS don't have an emergency bed Mm -hmm. in the likes of Lindara. They cannot... Send an ambulance to to pick up and bring her down to that. That, you know, mm. there are no beds available mm. for adolescent psychiatric patients on an emergency basis. So the only place for them to to be to be kept safe is in a hospital. Mm. Now.
1: You've been discharged from the lords, told not to come back. You've gone to CAMS. Uh, You've been told she needs help, needs to be admitted. Yeah. uh, But there's nowhere for her to go. Uh, And you're at the end of your tether. You feel you can't go to sleep, let alone anything else. Uh, So Mm -hmm. you've gone to Tala Hospital.
5: Yeah.
4: Yeah. So Tala have a psychiatric ward. It's an adult psychiatric ward, but they also have psych doctors on call, which... The Lord's Hospital don't have. So Lord's Hospital have an adult psych doctor who refused to see Amy. Refused point blank after me asking the nurses and doctors there. Could she get a consult with the psych doctor? No, The psych doctor here is for adults only. She's an, she's an adolescent, but she's in the adult ward. So it's it, it's kind of like making the rules to suit.
0: No.
4: You know, um, at least when we, we finally got here at six o'clock uh, yesterday evening into Tala Hospital. And went to, went through triage and and were brought in pretty much straight away. So that that was quite good. Mm. But then basically, she's been put on a uh, a bench. Mm. We were given a bench in a room, and we've been there since. That that's exactly where we've been since. So uh, they they've they've done a medical assessment on her, and, and they said they don't feel that she has any medical need to be um, admitted. And then the psychiatric doctor did a consult with her and uh, she was of the same opinion. And I said, well, you haven't spoken to her, the the consultants in CAMS yet. So the best I could get from them was that I could stay here until they spoke to CAMS this morning. I can't do that
1: until CAMS open at nine. And then Um, you don't know what you're going to do after that. I I have no
4: idea, no. And and to be fair, you know, I I don't know if I'm doing the right thing because Mm -hmm. I'm putting my daughter through hell by being here mm. but my only hope is that if she does get admitted to a ward which she, she needs because she's not well um, and if anyone else came into this hospital unwell they'd be admitted given the bed mm. But because the HSE or the, the hospital system decide to label beds you know they have psych beds in this hospital but because she's not an adult they won't put her in one and right. the only beds they have for adolescents medical beds, that's the name they put on them here mm. and she doesn't have a medical need for that bed so they
1: uh, won't uh, give uh, And you're contacting us now uh, so that you can highlight how dire the situation is, in the hope uh, that other children and young people will get a, a better service—a service that has been deplorable for mm. decades—and uh, uh, yeah. has been highlighted uh, in uh, this interim report uh, that seemed to shock yeah. a, a lot of people yesterday. Uh, but it, it speaks to your experience of CAMS locally because they they uh, looked at, at five. Uh, out of uh, the nine CAMS regions or health authority regions, uh, this right. part of the world uh, h- hasn't been reviewed yet but you say it's no, no different here and it, it's exactly no. in line with what you've...
4: Absolutely. Everything I've read in those reports it, 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 I've experienced mm. first hand.
1: Medication is one thing that comes to mind I, I, I think for you Richard on medication uh, but it's not being monitored.
4: No, no. So they have like, they have never um Obtained or requested uh, a blood test in all the time that she's been prescribed psychoactive medications by camp. The only time they ever got a blood result was by obtaining it from the hospital and they asked me to get it for them.
0: Okay.
1: On one occasion. You know, there's going to be a lot of statements in the doll today about uh, mental health services for children and adolescents uh, and uh, the shortfall and how uh, the state has uh, been failing them. Uh, and yeah. uh, we'll uh, undoubtedly hear about all of uh, the change that's promised. Uh, Mihal Martin was saying yesterday uh, that the service is, is unacceptable. Uh, and, uh, well, he should know that because he campaigned vigorously uh, up to the last election uh, and in the last term of the doll. Fianna Fall were very Strong o- on this issue. Uh, so, mm-hmm. two and a half years into government, the, the, the Taunusha is now saying that the service is unacceptable. Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, said this morning change is coming, but psychiatrists are warning that it's going to get worse between now and mm-hmm. 2030. There just isn't the resource.
4: Yeah, I mean, they they, they know statistically that they, they can quote you the percentage increase yeah. in referrals um, to CAMs. Um, cams the CAM staff have been screaming for the last. Year, five years about the increases in numbers of referrals they're getting. GPs have been screaming about the numbers increasing of teenagers being referred for mental health issues. And and repeated governments have just done nothing about it. It's too it's, it's near oh, it's, it's too late, it's never too late. But it's but it's bloody late to be doing anything about it now. I have to wait for a damning report to come out before they do anything and then when will it actually get done if anything gets done. Like it, it, there's a lot of talk about you know the deficiencies in cans at the moment, but the whole system for children um, right through into the hospital uh, environment and under the HSE umbrella needs to be looked at.
1: Do you believe uh, Amy has been uh, abandoned and that you have been uh, abandoned and left to look after her on your own, using your own devices without any real support? Uh, You're finding it difficult to Get the time to sleep, or get the nerve to go asleep, I- I- if you like. Yeah. Uh, are you able to hold down a job?
4: Just about, like, like I've been very fortunate, and my my employer's been so mm. good to me. Um, I, c- I couldn't praise them enough. You know, giving me time off, you know, to go mm. over the years as as I've needed. Um,
1: but and it's I'll an impo- it's an know. impossible situation, isn't it?
4: It is. It, it, it's. You know, but look. She she has said to me today that and um, or this morning rather that um, she's going through this twenty four seven and this is you now her voice her words um, she's going through this pain and anguish and frustration with the system the services the lack of help they don't feel she doesn't feel that she she's getting help or that she can't or that they can't help her she's totally disillusioned and she's just lost the will to fight. Mm.
1: And she needs help, and you want her to get that help that she needs.
4: Yeah. She's just given up. And that's really hard to hear, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, it appears to be too much to ask for. Shouldn't be. You know, she's
4: a child. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: And that's the reality of life for Richard and his 16-year-old daughter. I was speaking to Richard before we came on air this morning just before nine o'clock and uh, hopefully at at this stage he's spoken to the team in uh, in Tala who have spoken to Cams uh, because they had to wait until nine o'clock and hopefully that uh, some space has been found uh, for his daughter who is going through a a real crisis if you've been disturbed by that uh, or if uh, you'd like to speak to somebody uh, about depression or suicidation Pieta House can be reached 24-7 on 180 hundred two four seven two four seven
3: Michael Reed
1: on LMFM. As you probably know, the Minister for Health won't speak uh, to this programme about uh, the future of uh, the emergency department in our ladies' hospital in Navan. but Stephen Donnelly, uh, whilst he continues to refuse our invitations and our countless invitations to speak to the local radio station uh, about our ladies' hospital, he spoke to RTE uh, this morning. He was asked on the Morning Ireland programme, why what is the future for the ED? Well,
6: the situation in, in, in Navan is that a, an ambulance bypass protocol has been put in place to deal with uh, the patients who are most at risk uh, so there's an ongoing piece of work uh, the government will consider a report by the HSE into additional capacity that's needed in Navin uh, in Drada. I can tell you that there will be no further changes made uh, It, it w- will be considered until all capacity that has been identified in those reports Mm -hmm. is in place.
1: That's uh, Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, uh, speaking to RTE, Radio 1's Morning Ireland programme uh, this morning. Let's speak to John Regan, sector organiser with SIP2. He's uh, the chair also of uh, the Meath Trades Council and Meath District Council. John, good morning to you. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, the Minister is saying nothing will happen until the capacity is put in place. But when the capacity is put in place, the plan is to close the emergency department in... You say that's going to put workers' entire minds at risk.
7: Yeah, we we, we wouldn't welcome that. Uh, First of all, I suppose it's positive insofar as nothing is going to happen immediately to the A&E. But uh, any long-term plan for the A&E, the communities and ourselves, should be involved in any debate around that. The Minister committed to that kind of uh, approach but hasn't done anything about it. So there's a number of community groups that have not been involved in any decision-making and any involvement around what is needed in the A&E.
1: Well, there's no community group that has had the opportunity to speak to the Minister. The Minister won't speak to people locally outside of members of the Oireachtas. He won't speak to the local radio station, won't speak to the local newspaper, won't speak to the trade unions, won't speak to the County Council or its members.
7: No, absolutely, and that's the, you know, the, the unbelievable situation that we're in where the, uh, um, the HSE have total run on this um, and the Minister seems to be found wanting when it comes to reeling back the HSE in any other plans. But nevertheless, uh, as the A&E is not now going to immediately be under pressure to move from a 24-7 service uh, I'm saying, and we've said it consistently all along, that we want an input into how this is going to be resourced, how the hospital is going to be resourced going forward, and indeed the whole question of a regional hospital has to come into the frame as well, hmm. uh, as part.
1: Of Wishful that, thinking, uh, I'm afraid, John. I don't think. Uh, you're, I,
7: I accept that, Mike. You're going to win
1: any ground with this minister. I'm not sure that the minister has much respect for local opinions on this.
7: No, look, uh, correct, but again, just going back to what you said at the beginning, Tara Mines, the biggest um, lead and zinc mine in Europe, absolutely requires 24-7 service of an A&E at its doorstep, not 40 uh, minutes of a drive uh, either way to Mullingar, which would be even longer, or to Drogheda, which is the plan at this moment in time. That is totally unacceptable, it is not going to work for the facilities and indeed the wider community apart from Tarra Mines and what it requires. Um, we also spoke about all the construction work that's going on, all the farming activity in this county. All of that absolutely requires a 24-7 A&E service. So there's, there's a, a, a huge uh, you know, difficulty here in convincing anybody. That we, we are going to fight to the very end.
1: Yeah, but what would you know about it? I, I mean that I mean I, that that's basically a question that was put to you in a, a letter to the Irish Times by uh, a retired hospital consultant uh, Professor Patrick Bow who said in relation to what's appropriate and feasible for Navan General Hospital it, it would be far better that you and your fellow campaigners support the local and national healthcare experts to reconfigure the hospital to provide safe care to appropriate patients commensurate with the available resources and staff there's nothing more stressful for health personnel than trying to treat seriously ill or injured patients in the absence of appropriate resources and expert backup, which he was saying is not in Navin and won't be in Navin. So the change that the Minister and the HSE are talking about is necessary.
7: Yeah, again, that's narrow vision by him. Uh, I'm not aware of the letter. I didn't see the letter. But the thing is uh, there are 17 consultants, his colleagues, in Haddad, that have completely gone against that view there is another 10 consultants in Mullingar who have also gone against that view the capacity has to be but right uh, the services of the A&E in it for, the, for the communities has to be taken on board which is not at this moment in time by the HSE also just look at what happened over the weekend all 18 hospitals have come out this is not now mm. just a Navan problem this is a countrywide problem. It is even wider than the 18 that have come out on the weekend. So, look at...
1: Yeah, but um, I think uh, there's probably a, a reality of uh, this perfect storm that hospitals have uh, been dealing with, the, the triple whammy of COVID, RSV and the flu. Uh, when we get into March, April and the hospital's quietened down, most likely uh, something is going to happen uh, to close the emergency department in Avon. Do you accept that?
7: I, I believe they will certainly focus more on it in the in, in the spring months. But the reality is next winter we'll have the same problem. Viruses and flus and COVID will still be around. There will be major problems for the winter months if they do if they go ahead with their plan to reduce services in A and E's across the country. They need to start resourcing A and E's mm. and reopening some of them that are already closed. That is what Limerick is looking for. And Limerick is a prime example of how not to handle A&Es. They have closed down A&Es around them and Uh, It is now detrimental to life. Yeah, uh,
1: and they're reversing uh, the protocols. They're sending patients uh, to Ennis and so on. John, we have to leave it there because we're out of time. But thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme today. John Regan, Sector Organiser with SIPTU and Chair of uh, Mead's Trades Councils and Mead District Council. Now, uh, the hospital uh, may or may not close down uh, come the spring going into the summer, March, April, May. Uh, And it may not. Uh, As I said, Stephen Donnelly won't speak to people locally. Uh, But he was up in Donnybrook speaking to RTE this morning. Uh, Let's hear a little bit more uh, about what he's been saying uh, about the local hospital here to Morning Ireland.
6: There's no further changes to Navin planned at the moment. The ambulance bypass has been put in in place quite rightly to deal with the patient safety issues. And what I'm saying, Mary, is that what we will not be doing is making further changes without additional capacity being put in place in places like Our Lady of Lords in Tralee.
3: Okay. You have the human there you tissue that
1: uh, Stephen Donnelly uh, doesn't seem too uh, bothered uh, doesn't seem too shy about talking to RTÉ, he doesn't speak to LMFM or the Maid Chronicle or something like that uh, where uh, the people who are served uh, by the hospital are getting their news. But anyway, that's uh, Stephen Donnelly, Minister for Health speaking to RTÉ's Morning Ireland today. Michael,
3: Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
1: Now, thanks if you've uh, been in touch with us uh, today, John one of Uh, the people uh, who took time uh, to call us after the interview with Richard uh, who's trying to get help for his 16 year old daughter who is in the middle of a nine day crisis trying to keep her uh, alive and John says isn't it just terrible to listen to that man and what he's going through. One hears of these so called TDs talking about a few Bob Put into a few posters. Shame on them. Uh, These are the issues that they should be talking about. Obviously, John Fields. Claire in Meath says, uh, Good morning, Michael. Uh, Government of spoofers, talk is cheap. Upgrade the hospital in Navan, cop on, we need hospitals. Uh, And she says, What has gone so wrong in this country? Where is the care, respect, and duty of care? That poor man is climbing the walls. His daughter is a child when it suits, and an adult. At other times, if that's what suits. What is wrong? She's a human being, says Claire. Somebody else in touch with us uh, saying, My heart goes out to Richard, the forgotten children, where the help, where's the help for the child? Uh, and indeed uh, for the parents. Well, thank you if you have been in touch. If you've not been in touch and you want to make a comment on the programme today, our telephone number is 041-983-2000. Text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, says uh, that the safety of members of on Garda Shia is of utmost importance and concern for the force, for himself as Commissioner and for all four of the Garda representative uh, associations. Uh, this follows uh, the latest uh, attack on uh, a member of Angarda Shia Kana, which has resulted in permanent and lifelong lasting deformities to a Garda's finger. Uh, it's as a result of uh, a man uh, alleged to have bitten off uh, part of uh, the Garda's uh, finger um, in what seems to be a, a remarkable uh, story following a driving incident at Gulliver's Retail Park in Ballymon. Uh, the man is accused of causing harm to the injured Garda and for the theft of two cans of Red Bull worth six euros. Uh, he's then charged with dangerous driving criminal damage to a, a roadside steel bollard allegedly hit by his Mercedes, damage to the cell door in the Garda station and to a blanket uh, with his urine. Uh, the same man, E uh, contend failed a, a roadside drug drive test, uh, which had results, they say, for cocaine, cannabis and benzos. Uh, And uh, this man has been released on bail of 1,500 euro. Now, the Garda Commissioner met with uh, the four Garda representative organizations yesterday. And let's speak now to Tara McManus, who's uh, the Assistant General Secretary of the GRA, the Garda Representative Association. Hi, I'm
0: Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
1: Very good morning to you, Tara. Thanks indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. This latest uh, assault was particularly horrific, wasn't it?
9: it? It was indeed. Good morning, Michael. Good morning to your listeners. Yeah, um, look, at this, this particular assault um, was particularly aggressive, particularly violent. And uh, it serves as a a very stark reminder of the risk that our members are undertaking every day. And unfortunately, this type of assault and this type of behaviour, we just see it on the rise more and more. And we have some very stark statistics uh, with regards to assaults on members in in the last number of years. Um, We look at things like last year in 2022, there were 285 serious assaults on our members. Um, Now, when I say serious, that means assaults which results in bone fractures, head injuries, dislocations, open wounds, bites. Um, these are all incidents that require that member to be hospitalised, and in some cases, require surgery. Um, you know, over five thousand guards have been assaulted uh, while on duty between two thousand and sixteen and twenty twenty two. Uh, so we're seeing a year on year increase not only on the assaults, but on the type of assaults and the seriousness and the aggression that's actually attached to these types of assaults.
1: So they are increasing. This is a, a relatively new phenomenon.
9: It is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, you know, between 14 and 50% of all injuries currently suffered by Gardaí are as a direct result of an assault. When you look at other professions you know, nationally, their average is about 3, 3%. So obviously Gardaí are up there about 50% of our members who are who are suffering injuries are as a direct result of an assault. And that assault on Saturday, I mean, you've, you've just outlined the circumstances and mm. when you hear it there outlined step by step, and then to be told at the end of that, that that particular man actually got bail. Um, it's infuriating for, for us as an association. It's infuriating for our members. There's clearly no deterrent to people out there. You know, anybody else there considering assaulting a guard today would, would be thinking, well, sure, I'm not going to get locked up for this. So why should I be afraid of, of assaulting a guard?
1: OK, you want body cams. Uh, it seems as though you have uh, the support of uh, the commissioner.
9: Yeah, we have been looking for body cams for quite some time, and we've been advocating um, for this for a long time. Now, I do believe what's holding that situation up is is the last the drafting of the legislation. Obviously, there needs to be certain legislation in place there to oversee the monitoring of that and how that information is stored and how it's accessed. But I mean, you know, that's something that needs to be sorted urgently because members need to have that safety and that security to know that every interaction they have with a member of the public is being recorded and not just snippets of, of people recording stuff on their phone and then editing to make it look like perhaps a guard aggravated in an instant. If we had those body cams up and running on a permanent basis, then every interaction we would have with a member of the public is recorded. And if an incident like what happened on Saturday occurs, the series of events is very, very you know directly seen and can be actually monitored and you can actually see how the situation escalated and th- from there mm. then we can make decisions and make directions on what other alternatives we need to look at to, to protect our members
1: right uh, just back up a, a little bit there uh, and explain that to me uh, in uh, a little bit more detail what, what what are you talking about are you talking about people using their phones to film members of on And then dickying them up, editing them to look like something happened that didn't actually happen.
9: No, what I'm, I'm talking about there is when, when people show footage of uh, their interaction with a guard, they might show the last 10, mm. 5 seconds. And at that stage, it's the guard making the decision to perhaps make an arrest. If that person is violent, they might decide to use their ASP. They might decide to use their pepper spray. And all you see is that small, maybe 5 to 10 seconds clip of that guard making the decision. You mightn't have seen the two or three minutes leading up to that where the guard is perhaps trying to reason with that person, ask them to desist, ask them to go home has perhaps given them a warning mm. that they need to leave the area. So you're only seeing, you know, the last two, or, the last five to ten seconds of where that guard actually makes the decision that they actually need to use some of their personal equipment to actually affect that arrest. Right. So if we had body cams, we would be able to see mm. the build-up to that situation. You can see the guard making their decision, trying to reason with the individual, perhaps giving them the warning to leave the area or whatever. But when you're only seeing those last five to ten seconds, it appears that the guard perhaps maybe is being heavy-handed or whatever, but they're not. They have made a decision based on what has happened across the last five to ten minutes.
1: Because they were left with with no option to do that and the way that this is being portrayed is selective.
9: Absolutely. Whereas if we had those body cams, we would be able to use that footage and actually see that the guard took the various steps that are outlined to them and the the various procedures that are available to them through the legislation, that they did all of that in the correct manner before making the decision to either effect an arrest, to use pepper spray, to use their ASP and actually to, to arrest that person.
0: Right.
1: Why do you need that footage?
9: Well, as as I just said, I mean, Hmm. we we only have limited footage, but I mean, every other police force across the world has dash cams, uh, and body cams. I'm
1: sorry, are people defending themselves by using their own footage? Uh, And do you need footage of of, uh, the context uh, so that you can counter what is being said in defence?
9: I mean, it's not just for the members' protection, but it's for the protection of the members of the public as well. Mm. I mean, you you frequently hear at the aftermath of of a serious incident, whether it's a traffic accident or whatever you know Ungardishia Connor are looking for anybody who has dash cam footage Ungardishia mm. Connor are looking for anybody who has CCTV because we don't have our own mm. so th- that's why we need to have dash cams and we th- the important thing here is the body cams to protect not just the members of Ungardishia Connor but to protect the public that the members are actually dealing with
1: Do you accept that there's civil rights concerns
9: and again that's what the legislation will address with regards to, to data protection and the freedom of information that will that will look at all of that and address all those issues how that information and how that footage and that data is stored and used that mm-hmm. will all be covered by the legislation
1: yeah, and you'd feel safer and it's a, a balance of rights is it
9: it's listen uh, the thing about being a member of vanguardia cona there are Certain liberties of, of members of the public that Angarashiakana have to take away from time to time, whether they're effecting an arrest or they're searching somebody, or they're entering a premises, um, and that's part of the legislation, and it's part of the legislation that's available to members of Angarashiakana. Absolutely, it's a balancing act, but the important thing is is that those dash cams protect not just the members of Angarashiakana, but they protect the public that the guards are actually dealing with. and for all major events they should be in use but even just for the guard who's in a patrol car the guard who is you know on the beat down the street interacting with members of the public it's vital that we have that footage that we have mm. that information that we can use to protect all members of.
1: okay society. and what about sentencing uh, and um the crime of uh, assaulting uh, a member of uh, the police force I mean it's one thing somebody coming along God forbid and biting my finger off Uh, I can't imagine that being uh, the case but when somebody is carrying out their duties in uh, the line of duty protecting the public uh, as uh, one of uh, the pillars of democracy uh, as the police force in any democracy is uh, should there be minimum sentencing for an assault on a guard?
9: Well look unfortunately there is no specific legislation that deals specifically with an assault on a member of the Shia Síochána, We do have um, the Public Order Act there, Section 19, which states that it is an offence to an assault, um, a peace officer. But there is no specific legislation that actually deals with a member of the Shia Síochána being assaulted. So those cases and those investigations are treated the same as if any member of the public was assaulted. Um, look, the legislation and, and the justice system is, I suppose, a conversation for another day. But uh, yesterday's um, yesterday's granting of bail to the suspect offender there in that assault in Ballymun just shows that there isn't a deterrent for assaulting a member of Vingardie Shea As you correctly pointed out, that, that poor uh, member... In, in Dublin is now left with life-altering injuries as a result of losing part of his finger in what anyone would probably you know, say was a kind of a routine stop. Um, so if, if that's the type of crime and the violence that we're looking at, I, we do think that the legislation needs to be examined. And a specific crime of assaulting a member of, our, of, of Garda Giacona be introduced to the
3: legislation.
1: Okay, we'll leave it there, Tara. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the program. Tara McManus, Assistant General Secretary of the Garda Representative Association. Michael,
3: Michael Reed on, on now We're
1: going to talk uh, about uh, the local property tax and how some 360 ho- homeowners have undervalued their properties for the Uh, purpose of uh, declaring their local property tax with Charlie Weston, uh, who is uh, the personal finance editor with uh, the Irish Independent, writing... Extensively about this today. Charlie, good morning to you uh, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, Before uh, we talk about the local property tax, though, maybe we could talk about some breaking news Uh, and indeed interest rates. We know that they've been going up for mortgage holders. There's some good news and bad news coming from Bank of Ireland today. Bad news for somebody who's looking to fix their mortgage and possibly good news uh, for somebody who's saving some money.
10: Right, Michael, yeah, just in the last few minutes, Bank of Ireland has announced a second mortgage rate rise. It's fixed rates. They're going up by 0.75% for new buyers, uh, which will mean, say, a first time uh, buyer couple are trying to borrow €300,000, it'll now be €125 euros a month more expensive. Oh, and if you're an existing customer of the bank and you're coming to the end of the fixed rate or you've decided the tracker is not good value anymore or your variable rate is, is rubbish. Uh, if you decide to fix, uh, you will have to pay uh, a half percentage point more on a fixed rate for the cross their fixed rate. So 0.75% for... Uh, New new customers and uh, existing customers, uh, mortgage customers who want to fix, it's going to be an increase of 0.5 percent in their fixed rates. That's the bad news. Mm. There is some good news. the The, the big losers all along uh, lately have been the savers. They've been getting pitiful uh, rates of uh, return on their money, under something like 150 billion euros in household savings in banks and credit unions, Uh, but Bank of Ireland is increasing its regular saver deposit amount by half a percentage point, which is good news, which means that goes up to 0.75% on their mortgage saver, their gold saver and their child save accounts. That's capped at fifteen thousand euros. Mm. It's also launching a new one-year term deposit account for personal customers, uh, paying a half percent. Not huge, Uh, you know. But look, there would be no movement really on deposit rates. There was a small change from AIB, but generally nothing. And uh, you know, savers feel they're losing out. Mm.
1: And that's capped at 100,000, I think. Uh, can you do yeah, better?
10: Yeah, that's, that's not going to be any big imposition. position. You shouldn't have more than 100,000 euros in any one institution anyway, if you're lucky mm-hmm. enough to be in that position, Michael, because your deposit guarantee only covers you up to that amount. So, you know, if, you, mm-hmm. if you're lucky, spread it around right. if you have more than that.
1: Is, is that as good as you'll get? Can you do better than half a percent interest on savings?
10: Perma tsb are slightly better, you know, the, the, the state savings schemes, the ones you buy in and post, they used to be great because there's no tax paid on them, they're pretty miserable as well, there's nothing really out there, they're all paying, you know, not much, so you know, so that's 0.75% rate from uh, Bank of Ireland on its regular saver account and their gold saver, their child account, they're... they're there's some of the better rates out there now at the minute. Uh, you know, it's 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 a tough time for people and I don't think people are going to start moving savings accounts around between banks. It's just if you're a Bank of Ireland customer, at least now there's some slightly better options mm-hmm. at least for your savings, uh, because you know what what savers are seeing is that their money has been eaten away by inflation and they they're, they're leaving their money with the bank the bank is getting to use it for free mm. making money off it and giving you nothing back so that's
1: a that's a lousy deal if you're a saver okay and there's some real food for thought uh, particularly for first time buyers uh because uh, they may not be able to afford the house now that they thought they could afford because the repayments, the monthly repayments will be all the greater because of uh, that increase in uh, the fixed rates. Uh, but uh, property, we're told, uh, is getting more and more expensive. Uh, is that the case if there's half a million properties in this country that are worth uh, under €200,000? A lot of people will tell you it's difficult to find somewhere under 200000
10: I tell you, there's plenty of first-time buyers out there who'll tell you they can't find houses for that kind of value. Um, So, you know, um, this is why I I looked at revenue statistics. Revenue commissioners put out statistics all the time on the the compliance rates with with, with the property tax, the local property tax, LPT as they call it. And I I, I did some calculations and I discovered that something like 360,000 people have... submitted a valuation. It's a self-assessed tax. They submitted a valuation of their home, which is less than revenue we reckon it's worth. And then when you look at all of the returns, it's about half a million, just over half a million homes are worth less than €200,000 as far as the property tax is concerned. Mm. So that raises some suspicion. Are people gaming the system here? Because the lower the value on your home, the lower the property tax you pay, uh, so I asked revenue, what's going on here? It seems strange that so many houses in the country seem to be worth less than 200,000 euros. You know, mm. 550,000, uh, you know, that's not reflected in the CSO stats, the DAF.ie figures, the MyHome.ie figures, any of those, um, you know, uh, how much is My home worked? supplements? We had one in the Indo at the weekend. Yep. It, you know, so but revenue are kind of saying, well, you know, uh, they seem to be happy enough that they just. They got that big change through last year. They got half a billion euros in. They seem happy enough, uh, even though huge numbers of people have come in with valuations below what uh, what revenue estimate their properties are worth. And revenue did a very big exercise. Where they looked at stamp duty returns, Central Statistics Office figures, DAF.ie ie figures, and they did a model, a mathematical model, and came up with a valuation for properties all around the country. No, but they do accept. Look at you know, you're going to know your house better than anybody else. You'll know if your house is worth more than the next one because you have a, you know, you've you, you a bigger garden, or else maybe it's worth less because you need to repair the roof and replace the roof. You know, so. Mm. But it does it does raise some suspicions that. Yeah. So many homes in the country are seemingly worth less than half, uh, or less than two hundred thousand euros.
1: Okay, uh, and you could be paying between ninety and two hundred and twenty-five euro, depending on uh, the value of your property. But these people are paying ninety euro. Uh, say, there's the chance that they're gaming the system. Is there any chance uh, that it's an honest mistake?
10: Could be an honest mistake. Yeah, and some people, you know, it also just a lot of people hate that tax. I mean, there's been surveys out recently mean mm vast majority of people just don't agree with it, think it should be scrapped, Uh, you know, that they they don't like it. Um, So, but it could be honest mistakes as well. You know, people might might be just convinced that their house is just not worth what revenue has estimated it's worth. Um, I'd say there's a variety of reasons behind it, but revenue for now are happy enough that they've got big level of compliance like most people have paid it most people submitted a return you know they're up in the high 90s those 90s percents those kind of figures so they're happy enough but there does seem to be some suspicion that half a million homes out there seemingly are worth very little for the property tax but um
1: and if revenue is happy enough I, I take it they never challenge it
10: they do occasionally. if oh, They see okay. something that's wildly out. I yeah. think that it was such a big, big exercise for them to get the changes that went through last year. I mean, remember, this was the first revaluation of houses for the property tax since it was introduced in 2013. So it was a huge exercise. Mm. It was a complicated change. It's self-assessed tax. You know, most people don't understand it. That's coming out in surveys. So I think they were happy to get her over the line. Now, if they, I think in time, this is just me surmising. If they look at the figures and ah, that house is wildly out of of counter with the ones around it it can't really be worth so little when every other house is worth 400,000 euros why is this one coming in at 200,000 euros if they see that they write to people and say look it come back to us Give us some documentation. Give us some evidence. Why do you think it's worth that? Uh, we, you know, and if you can prove your case,
1: they'll accept it. Yeah. If you live on Millionaires' Row, uh, you're not going to go unquestioned if you're claiming your house uh, is worth 170,000 or, or whatever it is. And I, I take it uh, there'd be suspicions raised as well if you told them last year that your house was worth 750,000 and then came back and said it was worth 170,000 the following year.
10: Exactly. You know. So you know, and mm. revenue are not. Stupid. You know, they have a big database t- now, and they'll know what all the property tax returns were for your neighbors. So if you're, if you have a similar house, you know, and to, to your neighbors, and, and yet you're saying yours is worth an awful lot less. Mm. They'll cross-check that and and, and they'll come after you. So you don't want to get on the other the wrong side of them, Michael. Either they have extensive powers to, you know, to, they can impose penalties. They can uh, they can send solicitors or or, or or a sheriff after you. You know, they, yeah, and if you're not paying enough, they can go into your employer and say subtract that money from that person's wages or pension, you know, so a mm. uh, formidable opponent. Uh, I, I think people are foolish if they're gaming the system. Maybe they're not, but if they are, they would I regard that as foolish thing to do.
1: Okay, well, it seems like there's some foolish people, if nothing else, uh, based on your report uh, today with uh, 360,000 homeowners saying their properties are worth less uh, than that figure of 200,000. Charlie, thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme. Charlie Weston, Personal Finance Editor with the Irish Independent.
3: Michael Michael Reid on on LMFM.
1: Now, the United Nations Committee on uh, the Rights of uh, the Child are to hear about uh, children's rights. In this country and uh, we'll uh, go to Geneva where the Children's Rights Alliance uh, will be presenting to that uh, committee. Julie Ahern, Legal Policy and Services uh, Director with uh, the Children's Rights Alliance is on uh, the line. A very good morning to you, Julie. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, there's a lot of good about growing up in uh, this country, but it's far from ideal, I suppose, is one way of putting it.
8: Good morning Michael, indeed you're right I mean it's been seven years now since Ireland's record on children's rights was last examined by the UN child and I mean if you stand back and to be fair about it a lot of good has happened since then, you know we've seen structural changes put in place government we've seen children young people having a greater voice and we've also seen real investment in the budget especially on part of the government but what we have seen as well over the past seven years is that there are some groups of children who are constantly being left behind and i suppose for us and for our colleagues over here that is something that we really hope the committee will focus in on today when it is talking to the minister roderick o'gorman and to the to government officials and engaging in a conversation with them about what can be done to make sure that all children benefit from Ireland being a great place to be at.
1: You have your alternative report are we there yet uh, and uh, I'm sure Uh, it'll mirror what the minister says to some degree and uh, there'll be some parts to it that will be very different talk to me though uh, about what happened seven years ago because everybody is very upset about how we're failing children and adolescents in this country with mental health services that's been made clear to a lot of people Mm -hmm. over the course of uh, the last couple of days but what did the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child have to say about this seven years ago?
8: so seven in relation to mental health in particular the committee on the rights of the child were very clear and actually some of the recommendations still
1: and we're losing the line there with yeah we've lost the line there but uh, julie we'll try to uh reestablish uh, that line uh, but i think what you were going to hear was that there was a serious deficit in services in terms of child and adolescent mental health services in this country that the UN committee made specific recommendations on making sure that children were not lost to the system and uh, that there was a system in place for making sure that they got the care that they received. Uh, I don't think we can go back to Julie. No, we'll try to re-establish that line in, in a few moments time. Uh, but we'll go to Kevin Meenan now. Uh, and a very good morning to you, Kevin. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, we've been hearing about a crater uh, on uh, the uh, at Mount Hamilton uh, on the RD road. Uh, you said it's not a hole in the road; it's more like a road with a hole. Is it?
11: Yeah. Thanks, Michael, for having yeah. me on. Mm. Yeah, it's it, it's 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 a fairly fairly bad road. Uh, I'd been in it during the summer and actually in fairness to kind of Maria Doyle she had raised it quite a number of occasions and then happened to be in it her mum lives there so I spoke to her about it um, we raised it ourselves Maria raised it and I, I come in and supported her on it and then when they come up again at the meeting it, it's an atrocious uh, road I, I would imagine ambulances or anything fire uh, trucks or anything going in there would be at peril in terms of losing a tyre or something how, d- uh, how deep is
1: it can you give us some uh...
11: well, there, there's it's, it's actually not even so much as there's 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 a number of them on the one road. So when you drive into, it, you suddenly have to hit the brakes, and literally crawl across it. It's like you it's it's really only part of the road that's left. There had been a number of floods through the years, and it, and it's just slowly was all washed away. The road, so there's only parts of the original road left. So that's why I had said at the time that it's not so much in terms of a bit of a a bit of a hole in the road. There's a bit of a road in. <laughs> in the hole itself.
1: Yeah, and I heard on uh, the LMF um, bulletins earlier on that it's been like this for years.
11: Apparently, uh, yeah, I, I hadn't seen it until... I'd, I had no reason to drive into it. I just drove into it in the summertime there and I had seen it and I'd said it to Councillor Marie Dollar, but I was aware that she had raced a few times but I, I had no, ex- no idea of the extent of how bad it was until I drove in and there, I was really alarmed at it. That and there's one other road not too far from there up in uh, Mount Flatt. It's the same. It's very, very bad. It's into because I raised that road issue myself in terms of uh, its a housing estate. that's in the process has been taken in charge, but uh, it, it was very alarming to see. And I have to say, it's was the worst road I ever, ever been on or mm. ever encountered.
1: OK, it's, it's, if they've been taken in charge, though, uh, why is the council not repairing the road? Say
11: that I was surprised then when an the engineer said he, had, he wasn't aware of it or he hadn't seen it. And I know engineers come in and out and to change positions, so uh, he was going to look at I did check in there recently to see has he got up that far. and no, I haven't got him yet, so I don't know if it's in the process. But you, you would need... It, it would be a new road that like, you're looking at. You're not looking at actually filling in the parcels as well. You'd have to do the road again. Hmm. The road's gone; like it's, 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 it's not salvageable at the moment.
1: Okay, um, that's a, a, an interesting twist as well. Uh, the engineer telling you that he wasn't uh, aware of uh, the hole or how bad it is, and uh, maybe there's other potholes like that that uh, would be uh, maintained or repaired if uh, the engineer did become uh, aware. I suppose uh, that's uh, something for people to take away from this conversation with them.
11: Yeah, I think so. And, and especially this time of year now, because you've had the bad weather, you've had the, the frost and stuff. So roads will be—you can see them. You can see them already now deteriorating roads that you'd normally be on. You'd, you'd notice them over over the Christmas time, or you'd notice them this time of year that how, how badly they've got. But uh, I, I and I drive past this road that we're on but every morning. I drive past and I look up at the, and you can see it. It's it's just past uh, if you're coming heading out Doherty Road past mm. the garage. In, on your right-hand side, you've you've a number of long driveways, and you've you've a road into that. And you can see it from the road when you look up, you can see how how badly in disrepair that it is.
1: Okay. Kevin, thanks for that. Uh, Kevin Meenan, Sinn Féin, uh, Councillor on Loud County Council. Uh, I think uh, we can go back uh, to Julie Ahern of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Uh, and uh, thanks for coming back to us, uh, Julie. I was asking you about what happened seven years ago uh, and the recommendations that came from the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child. Uh, who uh, you're in front of today talking about growing up in in this country but seven years ago a a lot was put to the committee and the committee made recommendations for children and adolescents who uh, need mental health services.
8: They did indeed, Michael. And really, I suppose for what we're seeing is that some of the recommendations that they made seven years ago they still haven't been implemented so for example they've recommended that we need greater access to mental health services that often children are waiting on long waiting lists and that children in certain parts of the country in an emergency ha- cannot access emergency services there's no 24 hour care and they're forced to go to A&E and all of this was replicated in the reports we've heard over the last number of days are still being issues present one of the big recommendations the committee made though was around the need to establish an an independent advocacy service for children, young people and their families who are going through mental health crises. And this is really important because what this will do, it will allow children and families to have a greater voice in their care, but it will also have someone there to help them navigate what can be a really complex system that families have to go through at a time when they're in distress and they're trying to do their best, Mm. their best they can by the child. A pilot has happened, but they haven't done any more than that. And we're hoping that this is something the committee will pick up in particular when it is discussing the matter with the minister especially in light of what we heard over the last number of days around the state for mental health services around the country
1: julie can i ask you um so what uh, is uh you know if if that's what the committee uh, has recommended so what Uh, if the committee is saying this is wrong and it shouldn't be the case so what Uh, because if the committee's recommendation had been acted on uh, well, then, we wouldn't have had Richard on the phone to us uh, this morning. We were speaking to Richard, who's uh, been trying to get help for his 16 year old daughter. Uh, because she's been in a real crisis over the course of the last nine days. He went from Our Lady of Lord's Hospital in Drogheda to local CAMs, And then uh, because he was told not to go back to the hospital in Drogheda, he went up to Talat this morning to try and get some help. Uh, And this is a girl uh, that has a referral uh, for inpatient uh, treatment. Um, You'd have to wonder what the point of all of this is uh, going to the UK and committee of it makes no difference to people like Richard and his daughter.
8: Well, really, I suppose the point of going to the UN committee is to look at how we can put pressure on government to make sure services are there for Richard and his daughter and trying to really push change in every which way we can. Because also we in the Children's Rights Alliance hear of stories just like the one you've described. And I mean, the toll it takes on not only the child, but their wider family is enormous. And what we need to see now is real change in our mental health services for far too long. We have known that that you know, it is, it's is—it's not accessible for people. Services aren't being provided when children need them. And we need to go in every avenue that we can to really yeah. put pressure on government to make sure that it meets the needs of our, some of our most vulnerable children and young people. So by having an international group of experts like the UN Committee make a recommendation, that'll hopefully be able to increase the pressure to really make sure we see that root and branch change that we need.
1: Okay, hopefully it's, because uh, it seems this morning it feels very much like uh, the problem in the emergency department every winter and we turn around and go oh god how did that happen uh, but uh, that's just one of the issues it's very much to the forefront uh, because of uh, the interim report uh, yesterday uh, and indeed the concerns that we've been hearing on the program this morning uh, of course from mm-hmm. Richard um, when you hear it firsthand like that it really brings it home but there's a lot of things uh, that you'll uh, be asking the committee to look at it indeed you have 73 recommendations you'd like them to act on
8: 73 recommendations and really those recommendations come at every aspect of a child's life so it's looking at what we know we can do better here and acknowledging the progress that we have made so another area that we think really we need to bring to this international stage to try see if we can get real change for children and young people is around children and direct provision and refugee children we know that the situation is significantly deteriorating quality of accommodation is deteriorating and we need to see children and young people being prioritised for a suitable accommodation but we also Mm. need to see other measures put in place for children and young people so we'll be bringing that to the committee today And and seven years ago
1: I'm sorry you cut across you seven years ago you brought it to the committee and the committee said yeah you've got to do something about child homelessness Mm. Uh, what was it then one and a half thousand children who were in emergency accommodation
8: Yeah Yeah and now we're at almost double that. Yeah. And what we've seen over the, over the past seven years is a significant deterioration in that situation. And we know that it is continuing to grow at the moment. And what we really need to see now is government to step up and take action because we know Oh, that housing homelessness is not inevitable, that actions can be taken. And we need to start thinking a bit broader and stop responding, I suppose, from crisis to crisis. but we need to be looking at the bigger picture when it comes to housing and homelessness and looking at, you know, do we need an agency to, to deal with this? What is, what is the way to get the solution, to get to the solution, to get the experts around the table to make sure that we can forward plan? And the issue of forward planning, I think, comes up in a lot of the areas that, you know, crisis has come up, but actually it's the need to forward plan and to make sure that we don't don't get to crisis point is really mm. what we need to be trying to focus government's attention on.
1: OK, and it, it's uh, not just uh, mental health services or homelessness uh, for that matter. You have 73 recommendations and, as you say, mm-hmm. uh, it covers every aspect of uh, children's lives I- in this country. And there's many concerns whether that's to do with health care or education. But you're also ex- uh, extremely worried uh, about uh, discrimination in this country.
8: Yeah, I mean, discrimination is something that's come up quite a bit from our members and from people who call into our information helpline across a wide range of areas. So from traveller children and young people who are experiencing significant discrimination in areas, all areas of their lives, but particularly in schools and in relation to suitable accommodation, but also discrimination for children with disabilities who we know struggle to access school places. And then when they do, the quality of education that they receive may not be where it needs to be at. So for many children in young people discrimination is a significant issue that goes across all aspects of their lives and what we see then from that is actually not just their inability to access key services but actually their sense of self and well-being and that that is also significantly impacted and it feeds into other issues as well so really i suppose when it comes to tackling discrimination we need to see the promise commitments around a strategy to eliminate discrimination in this country delivered on we need to see the equality mm. acts review so there are there are things that Government are moving and they have been moving on but they just need to continue their momentum and maybe give it another little push
1: okay we're very lucky to live in a country like this uh, for many reasons one of those reasons is that it's a very wealthy country but in such a wealthy country we have a lot of people who are struggling and particularly so in recent times because of inflation and the cost of living and indeed the disadvantage that comes with that
8: yeah, and I think, you know, what we see is that, you know, one in five children in Ireland is living in enforced deprivation. And what that means, I mean, is that they're living in houses where maybe there isn't a hot, nutritious meal on the table every day. It's things that most of us take for for granted and really I think you know it was really welcome before Christmas to hear the Taoiseach announce that he is going to have a big focus on addressing child poverty in his term as Taoiseach and he's going to set up a child poverty and well-being unit and that is really important and what we need to see is that announcement now followed through on we need to see action it's not inevitable there are things that can be done there are simple measures that can be taken as you say in a wealthy country to make sure that all children have a decent standard of living so to have this announcement by the Taoiseach is really welcome but we need to see now is a real drive and a real push for change because we have the means to make sure that no child is experiencing hunger, experiencing homelessness we just need to get to to work
1: Okay, well, uh, I think we were to do that after the referendum which was over a decade ago but there'll be a lot of focus on the rights of children uh, today and uh, tomorrow when uh, this committee sits Julie, thank you very much indeed Uh, always a pleasure, Julia Hearn, Legal Policy and Services Director with the Children's Rights Alliance
3: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on
1: LMFM Time now as is usual around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual there's a, a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with uh, those investigations. We're joined for the report this week by Garda Ethan Fitzpatrick from Dulik Garda Station and thank you for joining us. A, a number of issues uh, to report on and we're going to begin with the theft of for cattle uh, this happened in Boy.
5: Yes, good morning, Michael, and good morning to all the LMSM listeners. Yeah, there was a test. Uh, Gardier and Boy Garda Station are investigating the test of 21 cattle in the Rathmore area of Atboy County Mead. Between the 21st and 22nd of December, 12 shardley cows and 9 limousine cows were stolen. Inquiries are still ongoing by Gardaí, and if you're in the vicinity of Rathmore during these dates and noted anything suspicious, of any information regarding this crime please contact at Buddy Garda Station on 046 943 2201 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 666
1: all one, one, one. right. Uh, it dates back to the 21st, 22nd of December. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of value, I'm sure, attached uh, to this haul, 21 cows. And uh, I gather uh, you're hoping that somebody may be able to contact you if they've been offered the cows by somebody else.
5: Yes, yes. So um, we're just renewing the appeal there uh, in relation to this. Obviously, it's a a large, substantial amount of money for for the farmer involved. So if anyone was in the the vicinity of Ratmore, or has come across uh, cows for sale, um, they might be able to assist us.
1: Okay, we go back a week ago or so, uh, Friday week ago, uh, to a break-in at St Malachy's School in Dundalk.
5: Yeah, so Guardian Dundalk are investigating a burglary at St Malachy's School and Street Dundalk on the weekend of Friday the 13th of January. Entry was gained through a broken window connected to the office of the school and a quantity of money was taken from the office. So inquiries are still ongoing by Guardian Dundalk but we're appealing if anyone was in the vicinity of St Malachy's School on the weekend of Friday the 13th of January or have any information regarding this crime could they please contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042 938 8400 or as always the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 666 111.
1: As you say, that was Friday the 13th of January on the same day the church in Duleek was broken into.
5: Yes, so Garda and Laytown Garda Station are investigating a burglary on the 13th of January which occurred at St Kean's Church, Duleek County Mead at approximately 5pm two males entered the church by damaging a a rear door of the premises and subsequently damage was caused to one of the shrines in the church so Leytown and have carried out a number of inquiries and have downloaded CCTV footage from a local premise which depicts the offending vehicle as a black Volkswagen Passat with a silver trim on the windows and cream interior. So again Garda are appealing if anyone was in the vicinity of the, the church in Dileek at this time or have any information regarding this crime could they please contact Laytown Garda Station on 041 981 3320 or the Garda confidential line on 1800
1: Okay, the next report uh, is uh, going back uh, to Sunday week ago, the 15th of January. Shop around the corner from the radio station. Can't imagine how the staff there must have felt when a fellow walked in with a gun.
5: Yeah, so Garda and Drada Garda Station are investigating a robbery at Centra at Mullen Road, Drada, on Sunday the 15th of January at approximately 9.55pm. So as you alluded to there, a male entered the store armed with a handgun and demanded money from the cashier. He subsequently took a quantity of cash before he fled the scene on a bike with another male. The first male is described to be 5'10 to 6' in height. He was wearing a yellow puffer jacket with blue sleeves and a yellow T-shirt underneath. He was wearing navy trousers. He was also wearing a balaclava, but he took this off at one point and is described to have had bushy grey hair and an Irish accent, while the second male was described as being six foot of a slim build with a black jumper, grey tracksuit bottoms and a black hat. Uh, Both men were around the store for approximately 10 minutes before the incident occurred and they left in the direction of Rackmullen Park after the incident. So, Garda, your appeal, and if anyone was in the vicinity during this time and noted anything suspicious or of any information regarding this crime, could they please contact Drott Garda station on 041 987 4200 or the Garda confidential line on 1800 666
1: 111. Next, uh, an appeal for anybody who may have information about a fatal road traffic collision that occurred on Thursday of last week.
5: Yeah, so unfortunately, Guardian and Trim, they're seeking witnesses to a fatal road traffic collision which occurred on Thursday, the 19th of January at approximately 10 a.m. Uh, the collision occurred on the Nav and the Trim Road at Bechtes. It's in the vicinity of Connell's Cross. The collision involved a truck and two cars and unfortunately the driver of one of the vehicles, a male in his 20s, received fatal injuries. So Trim, Gardie are appealing to anyone who may have witnessed the collision, particularly those who may have camera footage, such as a dash cam on their vehicle, to come forward by contacting Trim Garda Station on 046 948 1540 or to Garda Confidential Line on 1800 666 111.
1: We're going to conclude in Drogheda and Friday just gone, and once again, uh, a fellow walks into a, a shop with a gun.
5: Yeah, so on Friday the 20th of January at approximately 9.15pm a male entered the Maxall filling station on the Norr Road draw at a county loud. He was also armed with a black handgun and demanded the cashier to hand over money. A quantity of cash was taken and the suspect then fled the scene. So, the description he described as being 5'8 to 6 foot in height a heavy or stocky build. He was wearing a grey hoodie with a Mackenzie brand a face mask, dark skin colour. Black gloves and dark navy work style trousers, uh, similar to Snickers style work pants, with brown boots or shoes. Uh, he left on a pedal cycle in the direction of the roundabout on the Dunor Road. Uh, Gardie are currently canvassing the area for CCTV footage, but again, are appealing if anyone was in the vicinity during these times and noted anything suspicious or of any information regarding this crime, could you please contact draw at the Garda Station on 041 987 4200 or the Garda Confidential Line at 1800 666
1: 111. Garda, Ethan Fitzpatrick of Dulit Garda Station. Thank you indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for the next one tomorrow morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. <laughs>
10: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email
0: now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.